Good morning, everyone. Today we are going to be addressing something that we probably all think we go through, but we might not all go through. We're talking about trials. And we're not talking about just trials where you go through hardships that everyone in life goes through. We're not talking about trials that, that come upon us because of maybe relationship issues or because of our expectations not being met. We're talking about trials that come because of your faith in Christ and your proclamation of the gospel. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'll ask you to stand with me as I read God's Word. At Grace, we stand for the reading of God's Word because we want to be reminded that this is not our Word. This is God's Word. He has given to us. We need to hear it. We need the message. We have lived all week in other contexts, and oftentimes we have lived not in accordance with the Word of God. Oftentimes we have lived not trusting in Jesus and we're reminded just coming here today together that we need God, we need Jesus, we need the Word of God and I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. For those of you that are memorizing 1 Peter with me, keep on going and uh, it's not easy. The older you get, the harder it is to memorize. So stick with it with me. I'll be focusing on verses 6 through 9 today but reading verses 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you, Lord, for these reminders that we need every day, every moment. Lord, we thank you for your gospel truth. We thank you for 
your choosing of believers and your sanctifying believers. And Lord, our desire as believers is to obey Jesus Christ and be fully identified with him. Lord God, please have your way with us as we, as we look at your word now. Change us, Lord. Challenge us. Comfort us. Grow us deep in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I mentioned that we are talking about trials today. You could, you could say we were talking about trials real and imagined. There's a lot of trials that happen in life that are very real that aren't the kind of trials that Peter talks about. There are some trials, though, in life that we kind of imagine we're going through because of our unmet expectations or inconveniences that happen to us or relational friction or maybe just stuff that happens in life. It happens to everybody and we call it a trial and we attach it to being a believer in Christ. Obviously, suffering is a part of life and it's often the pathway to growth and, and depth and progress and health. Just in, in everyday life, a mother delivers a baby, goes through extreme pain for the joy of seeing this brand new gift from God. An athlete would go through preparing, through agony, to maybe get ready for the Olympics and go through extreme agony for the glory of running faster or jumping higher. A cancer patient will gladly go under the knife for a tumor to be removed. And go through that pain for the relief that is found afterwards. That's not the kind of trials we're talking about, though. That is not the kind of trials that Peter is talking about. The kind of trial that Peter is talking about is this. That if you are a Christian, no matter who you are, where you live, or what you do, you will go through trials, hardships, persecutions, and testing for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. That's the kind of trial that Peter is talking about. Now the central idea in, in this first letter of Peter is that he is writing to Christians that are scattered because of their faith in Christ. They are suffering persecution. They are suffering for Jesus. He is writing to console them. He is writing to comfort them. He's reminding them of their eternal life that they have in Christ. And he starts verse 6 and he says, In this you rejoice. In what? In everything he has said so far. He starts this letter off and he says, You were chosen in Christ. You are elect. It's according to God's foreknowledge. He knew it before you knew you needed it. Sanctification of the Spirit. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's making you more like Christ. Obedience to Jesus Christ, that you should be wanting to obey him. And then to be sprinkled with his blood, to have full identification with the shed blood of Christ for our sin. He says, grace and peace are being multiplied to you. He's saying that according to his great mercy, God has caused us to be regenerated, born again to a living hope. And he's told them, he says, you are kept by God's power for this salvation that is going to be revealed in the last time. So he says, in this you rejoice. You're, you're, you're glad about this. But then he says, and he, he points out the quandary we're all in. There's hope of heaven, and at the same time living here on earth with 
many difficulties, many trials, many persecutions. And specifically, he is talking about them being on trial for their faith. In the midst of trial for their faith in Christ. Trials are a part of life in Christ. Peter went through them. The church of Jesus Christ goes through them. But if you think about it, American Christians, not so much. This is not bash American Christians day. I am a proud American Christian. Irish, English, Scottish, and Italian American Christian. Trials, though, are necessary, and it seems that we mislabel trials to be a very self-centered thing. Trials are necessary. Let me just say that. Trials are God's pathway to joy in Christ and growth in Christ. It's a pathway to eternally minded, genuine, strong, joyful faith in Christ. You you think about Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. But I think what has happened for many of us is that we have misdefined trials. We say that we are in trial when we go through a minor inconvenience. The coffee shop doesn't have your flavor. They're out of whatever shot you want in the cup. Maybe there's those bad things that happen and you say, oh, I'm going through a trial because of my faith in Christ. No, everyone goes through these kind of things. And we would never want to downplay human suffering, but that is not the trial that Peter is talking about. You go through relational friction and you say you're, you're going through trials but they're not the trials for your faith in Christ. How about unmet personal expectations? Or expectations or preferences? We major on those. We American Christians are so addicted to our comfort and to our, our, our program that we get so focused on ourselves and we view then petty annoyances, inconveniences, unmet expectations as trials. It's not the kind of trial that Peter is talking about. What I want you to see today is that the trials he is talking about are very necessary for our faith. And it would be quite all right for us to admit that maybe we aren't going through those kind of trials. And that maybe it's something about us following Jesus or telling ourselves we are, but not fully identifying with him and not proclaiming the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. In America, it is entirely possible to go on probably your whole life and, and attend church and read the Bible and be fed. Because we like to say that, I want to be fed. People switch churches because they say, I, I need to be fed better. I don't like the, what's being served. And, and not have the gospel change your life to such an extent that you live first and foremost for Jesus and to proclaim the gospel. This is what Peter is talking about. It is going to be very tempting for each one of us as we go through this passage of Scripture to apply it under our understanding and push the gospel into our framework rather than letting the gospel completely recalibrate our understanding of life versus the other way around is what we usually do. Now, some persecution, some trials are in your face first century Christians were going through those kind of trials that you profess your faith in Christ and you're under a sentence of death you profess your faith in Christ and you die for it there are people right now across the world who are 
under that program where you profess your faith in Christ, you are excommunicated from your family and you are under a sentence of death. Here, that is not happening to us. And I don't want you to think that, oh, we must be second-class Christians because we are not being killed for our faith. We might not be second-class Christians because we're not being killed for our faith, but we are weaker Christians because of it. We have misdefined trials according to our inconveniences and our frictions and our preferences and expectations. Some persecution is in your face. We don't get a lot of that. But I will say this. Some persecution is subtle and it's, it's on secondary causes. The, the majority of the persecution and trials that we go through for our faith in America is more the, the sort that says because of your proclamation of the gospel, because of your stance for Christ, you might suffer not death, but let's say an economic downturn or a political misfortune or a relational banishment. So we know that happens. So I don't want you to think that that means that we don't experience any trials. It's just that the trials, again, that we label often are really self-centered issues and not suffering for our faith in Christ. We tend to see trials as something we should get out of, avoid at all costs, escape from. And what I want you to see today is trials for your faith in Christ are what you should embrace even in the midst of pain because they are not comfortable but painful. What I want you to see today is why they're necessary. We're not going to look at all the passages we could look at regarding how you get through trials. I want you to see today why they are necessary. This is what Peter is, is saying to these Christians that were going through trials and suffering for their faith in Christ. And I know it would be much easier and we would probably think it would be better to not go through trials and to really have them taken out of our way because we think they're not really that necessary because we don't want to go through pain. But God is saying these are necessary. And I think there's something you should know before we dive into verse 6. Your greatest trials, whether you've been through them already or whether you're going to go through and you don't know what they are, those hardships, those sufferings, those trials for your faith in Christ are good for you. They feel bad. They make you think all sorts of things about yourself that probably aren't true. And what Peter is telling the people is, you got to think clearly on this. This is the truth that you need to know as you're going through these trials. As you're suffering for your faith in Christ, keep telling yourself what I'm telling you. Hardships are good for you, and they will be used by God for His glory and for your good. So let's go to verse 6. And I'm going to point out four things to you regarding why trials are necessary. So the first is in in verse 6, and the first reason that trials are necessary is because they point out how good salvation is. They remind us of heaven. Trials point out, and really trials proclaim or preach to you that how good salvation is by way of contrast. See, Peter starts in verse 6 and says, In this, in this great salvation you have, you're elect, you're foreknown, you're regenerated, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So for a little while, in light of eternity, you're going through trials. We think of life in terms of hours and days and weeks and months and years and decades. 
and centuries. God is thinking in terms of eternity. And so for a little while, while you're here on earth, professing your faith in Christ, you're going through being grieved by various trials. I want you to look at that phrase, if necessary, though. Some of you are going to be tempted to say, well, it's not necessary in my case. I'm already fully grown Christian. I don't need this. God knows I don't need it. That's why it's not happening. Not true. What this means is it is necessary. It is necessary. It's necessary for all Christians. Peter is not writing to just the leaders of these churches. Peter's not writing to just the, the special class of Christians that were gifted as evangelists or the church leaders. No, no. He was writing to every single Christian and saying, this is necessary for you. You're going through this because you need it. And the first reason is because it points how good salvation is. It reminds you of heaven. What happens is, though, sometimes we like to set up our life here on earth to look as good as it can look, like heaven on earth so that we don't have to worry about heaven. Do we long for heaven? These Christians were, were longing for heaven. What do we have? In this you greatly rejoice. Peter's talking all about salvation. This first chapter so far has majored on salvation due to God's electing grace, due to his sovereign foreknowledge, this regeneration he brings about with no help from us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. He has rescued us. And He did so before we ever knew we needed rescue. The Holy Spirit brings about a new life, the new birth, and takes dinners, sinners dead in sin and makes them alive spiritually and, and forms them into a new community, the new people of God, the, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the, the church. He unites people from different backgrounds around the gospel that wouldn't naturally unite. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, very different places with different languages and different cultures. Different colors of skin even. He brings them together in Christ around the gospel. And then he tells them that they're meant to live for Christ now and he tells them that they have a living hope in the midst of fierce opposition and and he wants to comfort them in their affliction because they're going through trials for their faith in Christ and their testimony for the gospel. See, God wants us to understand this now so that we would live more fully for him now. That we wouldn't be lulled to sleep, as it were, but that we would be vibrant and alive and fully engaged in following Christ. It's interesting what Peter is pretty much saying to them. He's saying, you know, everybody, we're not going to hell anymore. What do we do? We don't think about or talk about heaven and hell. We want to talk about here life on earth. We tell, teach our kids not to say the word hell. We should be very sober-minded about that there is a real heaven and a real hell. And if you're not a believer today, your soul is in grave danger that your soul is, is in danger of eternal condemnation in hell and that you're not on your way to heaven. And if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, you are in absolute danger. You look around and you say, no, there's no lightning bolts hitting me. Everything should be okay because things are just progressing as they did yesterday. 
And there are some eternal realities that are going on that God says, no, no, you need to be aware. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, as a pastor, I have, I have shared these verses with so many people in the wrong context. You see, Paul is talking in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, about having this treasure in jars of clay, the gospel, as we're living this life in these bodies. So most often I've used these when I go visit someone in the hospital and bringing comfort to them in pain. That's not the meaning or the message that Paul is giving here. He's saying when you're going through trials, he says the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. He says we're afflicted in every way. We're not crushed though. We're perplexed but not driven to despair. We're persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. It's not talking about people in hospital rooms that have been through a a surgery. We see that as our biggest trial in life sometimes as American Christians. He is talking about people that are under a sentence of death for Jesus' sake. So he says in verse 16, we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day for slight momentary affliction. That's these various trials that are coming upon believers because of their faith in Christ and their proclamation of the gospel is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond beyond all comprehension. He's pointing them to heaven. He says, we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. And we go, how can I look at things with my eyes that I can't see? And he's, he's talking to them about seeing spiritually by God's Spirit through His Word. He says, the things that are seen are transient. And we are so fixated on the transient. He says, but the the unseen things are eternal. Trials in your life for your faith in Christ and for your proclamation of the gospel point you to heaven and how good salvation is by way of contrast. I think you can tell by looking at me that I am not an African American. But I have been really intrigued by slavery in America over the years and about the plight of the slaves in America and, and I, I sang in a choir when I was in my younger days in college and as a young adult and at the church I became a believer at. And we, we sang in Latin sometimes. That was unique. But we also sang old spirituals. And I still remember the words of one. It says, I have a robe up in that kingdom. Ain't that good news? And I remember, I, I've thought about it so many times that those with least here on earth seem to long for heaven the most. And it's hard to get yourself longing for heaven when you got heaven on earth. And even when you've got your normal trials and tribulations of life that everybody goes through, it's just so easy to prop ourselves up here on earth and say that we're looking towards heaven, but really we're focused on that new couch or painting our house or getting whatever we want to get next. I know because I live there and and, and you live there and it's a battle it's a constant battle in an affluent society 
Trials are necessary because they point out how good salvation is. And those that Peter was writing to were going through extreme trials. Some of them were going to be burned alive. I'd call that an extreme trial, a fiery ordeal, as Peter puts it. But what he's telling them is, you rejoice in your election, your foreknowledge, your regeneration, while suffering agonizing trials. So you don't feel good. You know good. Have you done this? Have you, have you been through this? Have you, can't, looking forward to it, can you, do you think you can? Most of us are going to say, no, I can't. And that's the place God wants you because you don't go into it thinking you're strong enough. You don't, you don't psych yourself up for trials. God brings them to you and he carries you through them. You find your true identity and security in Christ and, and, and you, you, you strap on for the ride. Fox's Book of Martyrs, one of the older books around that are filled not with defeated Christians, but those who died for their faith in Christ with, with the name of Jesus on their lips. Victorious for the sake of Christ because they had salvation's joy. See, salvation's joy is different than that momentary fleeting happiness we feel when everything goes our way. John MacArthur put it this way, salvation joy is not some brief, shallow, circumstantial emotion, but rather something permanent and profound. Mere happiness comes from positive external events, but salvation joy results from the deep-rooted confidence that one possesses eternal life from the living God through the crucified and risen Christ, which joy will be fully realized in the glory of heaven. You go through trial for your faith in Christ you will be reminded of heaven. You, it, the, the, the trial will point you to how good salvation is by way of contrast from what you're going through. That's the first thing. And it, it won't just point out how good salvation is, but the second thing is it will prove that your faith is genuine. That it will, that, that trials show that your faith is real. Even though you go as through fire. Verse 7 says, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold that is perishable. If you were married in the era that I was married in, in, in 1991, oftentimes you would get a wedding ring as a man with gold and diamonds, as I have. And all I can tell you is we think of gold and diamonds as, you know, forever. And, and, and even if your house would burn down, you'd say, well, there's my ring or the diamond is still there. Those will burn. You won't be taking that ring with diamonds, the golden ring with diamonds to heaven with you. It's going to burn. It's perishable. So more precious than what people have killed for for, for centuries is your faith. Gold is, is highly prized and overvalued by man and faith is, is trashed and undervalued. And Jesus wants you to know that your faith in the trial will be proven genuine, real, a real thing. That your faith is from God, not you. If you made it up, it would be perishable. But God says it is precious. It is 
more costly. It is better, even though tested by fire. What Peter is telling the people is, you're going through all this trial, and you are confused, and you are discouraged by these persecutions. And, and you need to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and remember the truth of your salvation and be pointed to heaven as your hope and know that your faith is being proven genuine. It should, it should comfort you to know this. It, it should assure you. What he's saying is that your faith can take it because God authored it. Don't avoid it at all costs. Don't avoid trial at all costs, but embrace it because God has your faith. He authored it. James, the book right before 1 Peter, talks about trials in a similar way. And here is James writing to people who have been forced into difficult circumstances. They are finding it hard going and they're trying to survive. And, and James is writing to them on how they can thrive in Christ, how they can, how they can live in Christ. And he says in verse 2 of chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Your testing of your faith. You're going to be found to be genuine. But what happens often with us is that we flee in fear from the perceived possibility of trial. We won't preach the gospel because we already figure that someone is going to get angry at us. We already know we're going to be embarrassed. And again, I said it before, but you can live your whole life and never preach the gospel and call yourself a Christian and it just doesn't seem like that makes any sense, biblically speaking. But we, we tell people, hey, you know, if you don't have the gift. No, everyone has the responsibility to preach the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. We flee in fear from the possibility of trial. And do you remember what the trial is? It's not your preference. It's not an inconvenience. It's not a relational issue. It is being persecuted and being on trial for your faith in Christ and your proclamation of the gospel. Yesterday, I was in my garage for quite a while working on some things, and at one point a man with a goat came walking by. And uh, that was unique. I took a picture of that. The next thing you know, a lady is running her pony down the street. I'm not making this stuff up. It happened. The next thing you know, a guy rides up on his horse and just stops there in the driveway and starts talking to me. Tall, beautiful horse. And he says, you, you want to take a ride on this horse? He gets off his horse and he says, you want to take a ride? He's going to hand me the reins. And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> now, my absolutely was true. But then I started thinking, I haven't ridden a horse for like five years. And I started imagining what was going to happen to me when I got on the horse sitting in the middle of the street. It would buck me off without a helmet on. My brains would spill out in the street. I would die and I wouldn't get to preach today. So I said, no. I literally stood there, frozen in fear, fleeing in fear, and said, no, thank you. I should have ridden the horse. I'm sure, it would have been fine. But I thought that something was going to happen, and that's what we do. We flee in fear because we think we know what's going to happen if we live fully for Christ and we preach the gospel. 
Plenty of people will say, you know, I'm not allowed to preach the gospel where I work. Oh, really? Either was Peter in the city he was living in when he was a brand new Christian. They even told him, you better stop doing this. Most of us would say, I'm so sorry. Peter says, whether it's right in your sight or not, we will not stop speaking of what we have seen and heard. You are called to preach the gospel, to live the gospel in every place that God plants you. In your house, in your neighborhood, those neighbors that you don't know, that you need to get to know, those neighbors that you don't like, that you need to learn to love, and all the places God puts you, and, and you will experience trial as you live for Jesus and as you preach the gospel. It's interesting in, in America. Again, I told you it wasn't Bash America Day, but, but American Christians, we are so intent on our own comfort and our own feelings of goodwill or whatever it is that we are, we're okay with living the way we live. And we think that when someone starts sharing their faith that they're like a cut above and that's a normal Christian. You live for the gospel. I'm reading a book right now that ta- this guy keeps making the point that gospel truth must equate to gospel culture. That you can't just say, I believe the gospel and check the box off and go live like hell. But you've got to say, if I believe the gospel, I'm going to live the gospel. And that our church should look more like a gospel culture than the world. I'm burdened by this in my own life. I'm burdened for this in this congregation. That we would be content to say we believe solid biblical doctrine and not be intent on having that melt down into every nook and cranny of our lives. Trials are necessary because they, they point you to heaven. They point you to the goodness of salvation that you must be reminding yourself of as you're going through the trial so that you don't get confused. But also, it proves our faith genuine. Some of us haven't had our faith tested yet. Third reason that they are necessary we see it in verse 8 trials perfect our faith trials perfect your faith they strengthen your faith they make you stronger they, they draw you closer to Christ they develop you they mature you that's what James was getting at in James 1 that faith produces the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and it says let it have its full effect so that you would be perfect and complete and we think, well, you think you're all perfect and we get in a fight with someone over them thinking they do everything right. That's not perfect here. That's ma- perfect here means mature. Being fully grown as a believer, not lacking anything. Peter says, you know, God has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. So trials perfect your faith. You know, we go right over from James 1, 2 through 4 over to verse 17 
and act like it's not in the same context. You probably memorized James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And you think about all the good things that God has brought into your life. Your house, your spouse, your kids, your, your dog, whatever you've got. And you're thinking, wow, God is so good. But the people that James was writing to, same kind of people like Peter was writing to, he says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. What would be the good gift he's talking about? Well, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you, you meet trials of various kinds. The trial is a gift from God in his sovereign goodness to provide something that was lacking in their life. And their purpose, his purpose, was to lead them to the good result that he had in mind. They would be mature. They would be strong. Because trials perfect your faith. They strengthen your faith. You probably have a story about what God has done in your life and that probably the hardest thing in your life you would not trade for the best thing that's ever happened in your life because the hardest thing in your life has deepened you in a way that the best thing couldn't. What happens though a lot of times is we have this faulty focus. I won't even call it a faulty focus. How about a completely misdirected focus? Again, we get focused on our happiness, on our fulfillment, on our program, and we are not focused on Jesus and the gospel. If you are focused on yourself, you are not focused on Jesus. We should not be focused on ourselves, but on following Christ and proclaiming the gospel humbly and boldly in every place that we are sent, period. That is your life as a believer. Enjoy life to the fullest. I am not saying that you should not enjoy this life. I'm not saying you shouldn't go on vacation or have a new car or do whatever you do. Eat a good meal for lunch and praise God for it. But what I'm saying is we should be much more sober-minded about things of eternal significance because that is what our life is about because a Christian is proclaiming without saying a word that they live for a realm that isn't this earth, not the one we live on right now. God is renewing all things in Christ. He will renew all things in Christ. He will reconcile all things to himself. But right now we are living in a bad, beautiful world. I said that a couple weeks ago. A bad, beautiful world. And we are living between heaven and hell. And we are living now in light of eternity. And Peter is saying, trials are going to come and they are going to be so good for you. And they will be so painful. It will remind you of heaven. It'll perfect, it'll uh, prove your faith true and perfect your faith. And the one last thing that I want to point out, and really we're going to go back through 7, verse 7 through 9, because trials not only remind us of heaven, they not only prove our faith genuine and, and perfect our faith and grow us, but they produce praise to God. Trials produce praise to God. Verse 7. It says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though tested through fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I've looked through the Bible and I do not see that we as believers are going to be receiving praise and glory and honor but that God has reserved praise and glory and honor for himself as the psalmist says not to us, not to us but to your name give glory. So at the revelation of Jesus Christ, when Jesus comes again to receive his own to himself, we will be praising him and glorifying him and honoring him. 
And then he says, you haven't seen him, but you love him. And you don't see him now, but you believe in him. Your faith is growing, and you greatly rejoice. There it is again. Rejoice in your salvation, and greatly rejoice in Christ with joy inexpressible. That is a joy that cannot be expressed. When I think of joy, when I think of gladness and happiness, I think of everything going my way and how I feel good when things go my way. That's not this. This is everything seems to be going against you, and you have joy inexpressible. You have that salvation joy that you can't even express. And I think the thing that's been haunting me the most this week is that I keep asking myself that question, do I have joy inexpressible? And every time I think about it, I think of how I feel when things go good. The joy inexpressible is what you have when you're in the trial. I don't want you to miss, it'll be very easy to miss, but this very small phrase after that, joy inexpressible and full of glory. Oh yeah, God's full of glory. Well, that's not what this says. This says we will be filled with glory. That we're rejoicing greatly with joy inexpressible and we are full of glory. It's a wild thought. I don't know if it's a wild thought to you, but it is to me to be full of glory because we think of God being full of glory. But what it makes me think is one of the reasons why we're not experiencing what we, what we are intended to experience in Christ is because we're avoiding the trials and one of the ways we avoid them is by fighting within the family. And it keeps us from praising God. When the family of God is fighting, I'm sure we can flee in fear and we can have this faulty focus, but what about when the family fights? The family of God that was meant to unite. You say, well, how does this have anything to do with trials? Well, let me tell you, because you probably misread the, the verses. You probably read it this way. In this, I rejoice, because now for a little while, I have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing genuous of my faith, more precious than gold that perishes, may be found a result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus. And I have not seen him, but I love him, and though I do not see him now, I believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Obtain the outcome of my faith, the salvation of my soul. Because we read things so individualistically and so selfishly, we miss that God is speaking to a community of believers that we're going through this together. This is not meant to be individualized in the way we individualize things. you've got to make it your own of course but you cannot keep it in the I and me it's got to be the us and the we has to be that this praise that will be produced this joy and this glory it's it's we're praising God together as believers because we treasure Christ above our life and we are so linked together. These trials are cause for rejoicing. We value our inheritance in Christ. And we realize that we are in a community of faith that is supposed to be holding each other up, not tearing each other down. So what grieves my heart is when Christians attack other Christians. 
and it's because of the way they look or the color of their skin or the where they live or their economic status or whatever it is if you could remember that God brings people together in the body of Christ because of the gospel that wouldn't usually get along outside the church and you can look around even this room and go wow praise God that the gospel is so great that you wouldn't look around and go yeah I don't like those people over there or they really bug me or I don't like the way they talk to me or they don't like what he said or she said the, the family of God is, is supposed to be just that. There's this plurality, there's this community. And when the gospel is allowed to have its full effect amongst us, the church is full of glory. Not drudgery. Not divisions. Not insinuations. It's, it's full and radiant with the glory of Christ. Kill joy in the church is the lack of love. Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And he says, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Just like many of us would say, well, you know, the trials aren't really necessary for me. They would also say, well, love, that's a good option. And Jesus prayed, John 17, they would be one, even as we are one. He says to the Father. I think it's really important if Jesus is praying for us to love each other that maybe we should take notice and maybe that's one of the reasons that the church isn't suffering trial for our faith in Christ and the gospel being proclaimed because Christians are two at each other. You know, the family of God doesn't fight when trials descend upon it. The family of God unites when trials descend upon it. Since biblical times, there was a tradition that the Roman emperor Domitian ordered that the apostle John be executed by throwing him into a a boiling cauldron of oil. And uh, actually, Tertullian, uh, I think, was the first to describe it as a historical event. But what happened, supposedly, as the story goes, John didn't die but he kept preaching the gospel from the boiling cauldron of oil. And so Domitian had him exiled to Patmos, this prison colony off the coast of Turkey where he couldn't talk to anyone. Well, the Holy Spirit appeared to him and had him write the book of Revelation and said some things to us that we can still read today bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember therefore where you have fallen and repent and do the works that you did at first. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourselves. The shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love. I reprove and discipline and be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, will eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I have conquered and sat with my father on his throne he who has an ear to hear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches 
Lord God, thank you for your spirit and thank you for your good word of grace, of trial, of joy, of heaven. Lord, free us from our addiction to fun. Help us to find joy in everything here in life and to live it to the full, but long for heaven, long for your return. Until then, Lord, may we work and wait on you. In Jesus' name, amen.